Welcome to Noble Warrior. My name is C.K. Lin, Noble Warriors, where I interview leaders, entrepreneurs about their journey from the first mountain of achievement to the second mountain of purpose. So you can go out and navigate your own journey from the first mountain to the second mountain. If you have any friends who are on this journey who could use more inspiration to take that leap of faith, go ahead and share this episode with them. They'll thank you for it. My next guest is Jonathan Brill. He's a former global futurist at Hewlett Packer. He has published thought leadership articles for TED, Bloomberg, Fast Company, MIT, and Harvard Business Review. Today, he prepares businesses to profit from radical change. He's also the author of Rogue Waves, Future-Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change. We talked about a number of topics. We're beginning to have better tools, better technologies, and better data to be able to predict probabilities of what's coming. So what happens when we tied ourselves to a set of assumptions which are no longer relevant or true? How to use mental models to navigate a very complex world. When you expect disruption in your lifetime, how will you design your company or organization? How to train yourself to have maximum optionality like Elon Musk or Peter Thiel. How he learned to manage complex processes in the Michelin star restaurant. Finally, how to properly engineer company culture to motivate and reward people to experiment and to innovate. Please enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Brill. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So first, let me just start off by saying from one systems thinker to another, let me just acknowledge you for presenting a beautiful frameworks and examples to make this book as relevant and as practical and as valuable as possible. Um, for those of you who are watching the recording, if you're a systems thinker and if you're a builder, go get this book. You won't regret it. Thanks so much, CK. It's wonderful. I appreciate that a lot. So let me actually read a passage. The, the conclusion of the book. So maybe that will frame this conversation a bit. Then we can go into more details of you know, what it is that, that you are trying to communicate. The true captains of modern business see a more complete reality. They look outward as well as inward. They listen broadly and they read more than recent history. They constantly look to coordinate and they're intensely skeptical. Anytime someone says, this has never happened before. Often, they have had some training in an academic discipline that balance abstract thinking with finding objective truth, such as applying mathematics, physics, computer science, economics, and so forth. They also tend to be comfortable with ambiguity, can base decisions on stack-up probabilities. When you know what's most likely and what's less likely, but also plausible, you can plan for a range of possible futures and invest in making your preferred outcome more likely. So I really love the way that you frame this. On the, from the title point of view, it sounds a little bit of an alarmist, but mm. talking to you and reading the book and really get to know you more, you're actually not an alarmist, are you? I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I have a belief that, you know, what's really going on in the world right now uh, is we have more trillion dollar problems than ever before. But that also means that we have more trillion dollar opportunities. And so 
I feel an urgency for the future, an urgency for change. But that's because there's more possibility today than there ever has been before. And it's our responsibility, our generation's responsibility to make sure that we move humanity, we move civilization forward from where we have been to, to where we're going. I mean, when, when you think about this moment in time, we're at liftoff. We're at liftoff for the next generation of the human species. And what do I mean by that? It's not just that you have new technologies. It's not just that we have globalization. It's not that by 2035, another billion people will earn the local equivalent of the U.S. middle class on the planet. It's, it's not just that. It's that we're at a moment where things like artificial intelligence and explosion of sensing and communication technologies, statistical skills are making it possible for the first time to see the future. Now, I don't mean that we can tell you exactly what the world's going to look like 50 years from now, but what I'm telling you is this is the first time that we've had any ability to use things like climate modeling to see what that might be and, and to use economic data to, in a real way, start to imagine what that might mean in your community, in your town, for your life. And that's not just true in, in climate change. That's just the, one of the exciting things right now because of the, the big climate conference coming up at the end of the month. It's happening in healthcare. It's happening in uh, uh urban systems and urban design. It's happening in the way we, we create businesses, right? All of the things that you see companies like Google, the things that you see companies like Facebook doing with being predictive about what you might want and what you might need, those skills, those technologies, those competencies, they're commoditizing. And that means that in the next three, five years, these are things that you'll be doing for yourself in your daily life. And what does that mean? It means that we have the, the, the tools of the most powerful organizations on earth coming into our hands. And we have more than an opportunity. We have a responsibility to use that to climb the next mountain. I appreciate that. Thank you for the callback. Thank you. So, the, I mean, one systems thinker to another, I think about the world systems and processes. So I love the, the way that you think, right? So why don't we start from the personal before we go into the global? Because that way it's a little bit easier to more, make it more relevant to the individual listeners. So I'm curious, no, I have been accused of, hey, CK, you're, you're making this way too complicated. You're mental model. You're making things, you know, complicated. But I say to them, no. It's a complex world. Yes, I cannot determine, make a deterministic model what's to predict the future, but I can make it probabilistic. So at least things make sense to me so then I can apply source few forward, right? So I'm curious for you, Jonathan, um, how do you use your own framework to, to navigate your own journey from the first mountain to the second mountain and pursuing yeah different opportunities that's available to you because the whole world is the playground for you, right? So how do you navigate that using your mental models? So I, there's, <laughs> 
the world's complex and that's a complex question. Um, yes. The first thing I, I would say is the goal that you should always be looking toward, no matter what happens in the future, is how do you increase your optionality, right? How, how do you increase the number of options? And how do you increase your potential when those options become available? And that should always be the thing that we're looking at um, whether we're, we're program managing and we got to get to the end of the project uh, or whether we're looking at our careers and our lives, what's the broad range of things that are possible uh, and how do we take advantage of all of them should they occur? I think about when I was uh, 18 and I was trying to think about my life and my career and where I wanted to go. And I had such clarity about what would happen. And I sat down and I talked with uh, my uncle who was 95 at the time. Mm. And, you know, he was a little bemused. Uh, and he says, here, I finally figured it out. It's been almost a hundred years, but I finally figured it out. Here's how life works. Uh, you do one thing and then you look around and you decide what you do next. And then you do that. And that's all there is to it. His point was you can't actually know exactly what the future will be. You might have a kid you didn't expect. You might uh, develop Alzheimer's. You might have epilepsy. There might be a car crash. Uh, your business might implode. Uh, a technology that you thought was really going to grow your business might become irrelevant uh, tomorrow. You know, I spent so much time learning how to type. Right. And learning cursive, you know, technologies that in the they're, they're still kind of important. Right. Knowing how to write and and knowing how to use a keyboard. But in a world of increasing voice command and voice control and and, and verbal virtual assistance and, and uh, autofill. In many ways, so many of those skills are no longer relevant. And yet I thought they would be central to my success when I was 18. And so we've got to be looking not just at what we think the future is, but if that is untrue, how do we make sure that we're still setting ourselves up for success? And that's, I think, what the book's about. And that's kind of what I think about is how do you give yourself the best bet? How do you make sure you understand what's happening today? How do you understand that range of possibilities? How do you then make decisions that allow you to uncouple the downsides, make sure that no matter how bad things get, they don't kill you? How do you make sure that you're setting yourself up for the upsides? How do you just kind of work through decisions and often change small things about how you time sequence and, and hedge bets or investments so that that happens for you? And it's very much possible but it requires a level of rigor and, and a comfort with complexity and ambiguity that, uh, that is trained. I mean, you've got to spend time there. You've got to be willing to spend time there. And you've got to understand that the way to approach an ambiguous and increasingly volatile future isn't to have one plan. It's to be running a series of experiments, some you know, high potential, some kind of sustaining, keeping the business going, and some insurance experiments, some, some things just to make sure that no matter what goes wrong, you know, you, you've got that foundation that you need. Yeah. And 
most companies, most people, they don't think that way. Um, but when you take a look at something like the pharmaceutical industry, you know, they, they do this very much. They'll, they'll look at like a hundred molecules and run them in a horse race so that they can reliably have, they're doing enough experiments so that they can reliably have the combination of outcomes that they need when they need them. We see this in the stock market, right? You would never uh, invest in one stock, just invest in Amazon and hope uh, or invest in Bitcoin and hope. Like maybe you're going to strike it super rich, but you're setting yourself up for volatility that you can't control, right? That you did that, you know, it, it increases your potential when it goes up, but it, but it eliminates your potential when it goes down. And so the thing is in, in most businesses, most planning, you know, we kind of think about compound growth, this idea that um, we'll do better and better and better and better and better and better. Right. But we forget that in a volatile world, you also have compound volatility, right? That, that the mm. markets or whatever, mm. you know, trying to get in the camera here, you know, they, and, and, they and really that's, that's what the book and, is about, right? Yeah. Rogue waves, and that's, right? That's what the book's about is that compound mm. volatility. What happens when these individually manageable changes collide to become unmanageable? And how do you yeah. make sure that you've maximized your potential and your optionality when that yeah. happens? Yeah. Um, so there's a few things that, so by the way, this is noble warrior. So on this podcast, we talk, you know, I have a, I have a scientific background. So on this podcast, we talk a lot about life is an infinite game, right? You mm -hmm. play the game in so that you can continue to play the game. It's not sure. a finite game, right? So that's one, right. two, noble warrior. We use the dojo analogy quite a lot, right? It's not about, you know, mastering a move and i'm done and let me you know i can declare myself black belt it's actually going onto the mat and continue to practice some fundamental skills so then yeah. you can skill stack your way to unpredictable scenarios so when a situation calls for it right. it's uh you don't need to like oh my god what do i do it's like oh right. muscle memory then i can actually react with more right. grace and finesse and dignity that way Oh, so I would just want to bring some of the parallels of something that yeah. you've been saying. Um, yeah. One thing you didn't say is implicitly is what is the game that you're playing? What are you optimizing for? Right. Mm. So understanding the why you do certain things. So then you can think about the atomic level skills that you want to stack and practice mm. and be a masterful at so mm. you can move towards your goals. Anything you want to say about the importance of having clarity of the direction that you're heading towards? So I think understanding, having some understanding of why you're doing what you're doing is incredibly important. You know, I think it's really easy if you get too focused on the why to miss um, that the world's changed. And I'm not talking about personal growth work. I'm, I'm talking about in business that, that it's really easy to say, you know, here's my definition of success. We're going to be the number one widget maker in the world. And then you, you get there and no one cares about widgets. Like I, I spent a, a, up until I was about 40 trying to do things to please my dad, trying to have the skills that when my dad was 40, he wanted me to have. I was 10. Guess what? It takes about 30 years. Um, so I turned 40 and I got there and I had most of those skills. 
the last major thing I needed to do, uh, probably like in terms of my life goals, was write a book, which I've now done. My point is I sat down with my dad and I'm like, what do I do next? And he's like, I don't know. Why'd you do that? Like, my point is I thought I was achieving something my dad cared about. And by the time I got there, maybe, maybe 30 years ago he did. But by the time I got there, he didn't care anymore. And so I think we've always got to understand when the environment's changing and when we've tied ourselves to a set of assumptions that are no longer relevant or no longer true. Um, and I think that's kind of the, the great skill, you know, is, is having the tenacity to get there, but also understanding when there has changed. So one thing that I want to say in the quote that I read a little while ago, you said that um, I'm paraphrasing strong business leader, excellent business leader on both internally aware and externally aware yes so uh, i want you uh, maybe i'm projecting my words you know into your mouth so to speak you're not saying just like hey pay attention to the external world yes you're saying that and also you're also saying be cognizant about your internal goal like who why are you doing this for yes yeah, no if, maybe if so you're, if you're chasing someone else's cheese like why are you doing that Right. You know, like, why are you chasing another mouse's cheese? Like, it's a developmental path. You know, you talk about the first mountain and the second mountain, right? It's a developmental path often for, for me it was or has been or is. You know, you get to the top of the first mountain, you know, and that's really for me in a lot of ways chasing what my father wanted, what he couldn't accomplish for personal reasons, you know, and, and like my own flavor of it, but. Mm -hmm. It was really chasing mm -hmm. someone else's goals and then getting there and realizing, oh, wow, I've actually done it all. Now, now what are my goals? What, yes. How do I want to be in the world? And, and like you said, it's that for me right now, it's about that journey of self-awareness, about understanding my relationship to everyone else as opposed to everyone else's relationship to me. So if you don't mind, can we drill in on a little bit more on the personal? Yeah. Okay. I'll yeah. thank you for that. So, so. Most people don't have the wherewithal, the mental tools, the metacognition, right? The mm -hmm. frameworks, the mental models, the, the yeah. vast experience that you have had. Um, so my encouragement typically for them is, hey, let's build some mental models for you. So at least you have yeah. some simple tools to help you make decisions right? that's aligned yeah. with your soul, so to speak, right? Yeah. But in your case, you have plenty of tools. Uh, it doesn't make it easier. Or is it as it's it or or does it make it harder to find that intrinsic whisper of an inspiration of what you were really about? I think there are two answers to the question. Um what am I really about? What is, what is my egocentric goal in the world? It's, it's to explore as much as I can, to see as much as I can, to know as much about everything as, as I can. It turns out that's not a goal that most people have. Like most people don't wake up on Tuesdays and think, you know, gosh, I want to read this book. Um, or, or think if I'm not 
doing hardcore learning several hours a day. I'm not feeling alive. That's took me a long time to realize that's not most people's path, right? Me and it's you mine. both. I, I relate. I relate. Yeah. It's, it's my path. <laughs> it's a weird path. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so I'm really clear on that part of me. The new question, the new whisper for me is about what's my relationship to others, right? As I start to move from being the student to being, this is not quite right, but it's my Mr. Miyagi moment or something, you know, from being the student to being the teacher, right? Or the mm -hmm. student being the master to mm -hmm. now being the teacher. And how do I move from that uh, uh, kind of, shift from being the rock star to being the host mm -hmm. you know, and to being the, the, the person who, who creates the space for everyone else. And it's a different place for me, at least to be in, in the planet. I am really enjoying being there and trying to figure out what it means, um, mm. you know, and, and uh, from a, from a financial viewpoint, uh, and from a success metric viewpoint, right? What, what does success at doing this mean for me? Um, so that's kind of the new, the new whisper. Cool. Um, and I try and trying to turn up the volume on that right now. No, beautiful. Well, uh, that's something I'm deeply passionate about. How do you essentially, so one, one secret passion, I'll make it public. What the heck? Uh, is I believe so. There's different trends, right? Uh, Population is aging. Uh, uh, Automation is coming online. Therefore, and then people don't have enough to retire. So mm -hmm. therefore, the aging population, there's a huge need to continue to be back in the in the workforce. Mm -hmm. But right now, it's actually cheaper to say, you know, hey, thank you for your service you're out, right? Kind of, it's cheaper for, 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 for companies to do that. So, so there's an untapped um, workforce, right? Talent pool that mm -hmm. want to continue to engage and be relevant. Mm -hmm. So then how can we create the bridge so that they can continue to contribute, right? Mm -hmm. to, to make a living, to, to find significance in their work, to, to have you know, relevance to the career and so forth. Yeah. Bigger question. Um, that I'm exploring, and this is something that I'm deeply passionate about. And for me, I think the answer lies in um, courses. I believe there's a lot of wisdom and, and, um, and experience that yeah. these people can turn into products, right? Courses, and then mm -hmm. to really benefit a lot of people. And I've seen just mm -hmm. a lot of different successes amongst even my friends so this is an area that i'm really kind of thinking about mm -hmm. so my my question and I, I think what you're suggesting is kind of online courses mm -hmm. my, my question is you know how quickly does that commoditize right there's there's only going to be one uh, when, when i was teaching i used to like to teach illustration skills for uh for architects and interior designers and mm. um 
what I rapidly realized was there's this guy named Ryan Church. He did a lot of the concept art for the second round of Star Wars movies. And he was a much better teacher and illustrator than I ever was. And he put out DVDs. I was like, he's like, I'm not ever going to be a better teacher of that skill than he is. But what I can do, you know, is start to look at what are the things students aren't getting, right? What are mm -hmm. the aspects of what he's teaching? So I play the videos during my class and then I go around and work with the students individually on, on, on the little blocking and tackling issues. And, and that gave created the best of both worlds where you had a really differentiated product in terms of what I was able to teach. And you had like a best in class product in terms of this DVD. Um, yep. And so I think that we're going to have to figure out not just how do you put LinkedIn learning courses on video. I mean, that's all important, but how do you do the second piece of, yep. of I am a huge, I'm a huge, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge geek around transform transformational learning. So it's not just content dump on someone mm -hmm. and then say your job is done rather mm -hmm. is actually delivering the benefit of, yeah. Hey, here's where I was before. Here's what I go, want to go after. Yeah. But whole different conversation, a different rabbit hole. I want to focus on your book. So okay. maybe we're going to talk about that offline. Um, uh, let's see. So one thing that one key big ideas that you have is, hey, history repeats itself. Mm -hmm. Look at the past, look at the present, and look at them systematically as a way mm -hmm. to anticipate and predict the future, a la being the dojo. So then when you know, unpredictable black swan event happens, you're ready to go. Did I capture the big ideas correctly? Is there anything you wanted to qualify what I just said? Yeah. Yeah. I'd put a little more, uh, a little more specificity on it. Uh, my argument is that if you look at a longer historical period, a lot of things have happened before the outcomes might've been different. Um, but we can actually see, you know, there was a day in 1927 when the Mississippi was 80 miles wide. Back then, it uh, it displaced 600,000 people. Today, it'd be 16 million people, right? So we can look at these things. We can look at 1918 uh, and and probably in some of the the First World War. Um, you know, we we see the mm -hmm. Spanish flu breaking out. And we see the economic impact. We see the actions that were taken. We see the dominoes that fall afterward. And so we can know a lot, not just about what has happened, but the follow-on impact afterward. And I think that's what we need to be looking at. Um, the second piece is, you know, we talk about black swan events. Uh, these individual, these, these, these incalculable risks that, that fall out and out of the sky. Um, the reality is those are much more rare than you might imagine. The guy who coined that term, a guy named Nassim Nicholas Taleb, uh, you know, he said COVID wasn't a black swan event, that 2008 wasn't a black swan event. Uh, you know, September 11th, while well, we didn't know the day, like the fact that there was going to be a attack, a terrorist attack on the United States uh, by Al Qaeda, like that was a radically increasing probability. And so when we take a look at these things, 
you know, the issue isn't like what day do they happen? It's how likely are they to happen? And I think that's what we failed to, uh, to calculate was, was pandemics uh, were erratically increasing probability, zoonotic uh, things that move from animals to humans uh, seems to be a, an increasing probability. Um, and what we missed because we'd gotten better at containing them over the last couple of decades was that eventually, you know, eventually the, the, the dike, you know, the water was going to go over the dike. You know, this is the thing we perpetually miss in Louisiana, right? Like, I don't know. It's at the head of the Mississippi. Eventually the water is going to go over the dike. Eventually mother nature is going to win. The question isn't what, how often that occurs. That's not what you should be paying attention to. It's what's the following impact when that occurs, yeah. are you ready to take advantage of that change? So, so here's or are the challenge, you just going to be there trying to, to bail out your, your, your ship? I, I'm sorry. I keep interrupting, but, but here's the challenge, Jonathan, yeah. that nobody likes to buy insurance, right? The question isn't, isn't if a disaster will hit you in, in your lifetime, the, the question is always when, right? So that's why you buy insurance. Yeah. But no, but the reality is nobody likes to be reminded of their mortality, of their fragility of life. So nobody likes yeah. to buy insurance. So then sure. this is how do you position, right? The, the, the marketing yeah. aspect of it. So then they would buy insurance, so to speak. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and I think the, the reality that we miss, at least in business, is that uh, during the 20th century, there were about four major business shocks a year, right? Whether it was a legal thing like civil rights law or the foundation of the creation of new regulatory agencies or a world war or what, whatever it was. Um, things like that happened about four times a year. And so the question isn't how do you create insurance? It's how does your life change? How does your planning change when you expect to be disrupted as opposed to when you try to avoid it? When you expect to be disrupted, you, know, you design your organizations, you design your life very differently. Like we can try and kind of uh, build an armor our ship, build an aircraft carrier, or we can try and be a kayak that might tip a little more but when it gets flipped, it responds faster. When you take a look at uh, a business market, at least, uh, what you see is that most strategy assumes that the playing field will be even, right? That, it'll, that, that, that it won't change. And so what you want to do is build a strategy assuming that you know, the, the rules will stay the same. Well, that never seems to work. What you need to do is build a strategy that assumes the rules will change and figure mm. out how to take advantage of that. It's a harder question for sure. Got it. So, okay. But, so but they, my insurance metaphor is wrong because ultimately you're saying it's not about recovering the downside. Rather, it's how do you become anti-fragile, so to speak? How do you be uh, recover absolutely. faster, but also stronger and grow from it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, right. and, and I think, I think, yeah, Nicholas, Nassim uh, Nicholas Taleb, he's, he's very, who's the guy who coined that term anti-fragile as well as the black swan. He's really good at coining terms. Um, you know, he, he's, he's, um, he's a, 
mathematical economist and um, uh, who played in the stock market, ran enterprise risk types of things in the stock market for a long time. So he's really good you know, at explaining statistics uh, and the impact of statistics. What my book does that's slightly different is it comes from the role of a practitioner who's been in business right about like okay well how do you actually apply this like instead of saying anti-fragile is an important thing it's how do you become anti-fragile right yeah you're the sensei right you're, you're the you know dojo master trying to teach other people how to think the way you think so actually let's let's fast forward on that note just a bit now that you have certain um, mastery, right, with these mental models and ways to think about things and then anticipate, you know, uh, fragile or fr fragility causing events, things like that. Can you paint us a picture, a movie of what's possible when you have that black belt level skills? What's life like? What's company could like? So that way, people who don't have that white belt level can like, oh, yeah. black belt level. Yeah. Now I could see, right? Um, yeah, so I mean, Elon Musk is a great example of setting yourself up uh, to do massive things. Um, he typically does things that are, you know, if you look forward into the future, these are things that should exist uh, that that governments will support if they uh, get to a certain scale and then falter. Um, and that the current industrial structure makes him possible. And so he looks for a thing, an environmental shift that will need to happen in the future. He looks at industries that are not able to make that shift. And then he figures out how he's going to have that backstop. In 2008, right, uh, SpaceX almost went belly up and NASA had to back him. And, and why did they do that? It wasn't because they believed in SpaceX particularly. It's that they were tired of, of the, the Lockheeds and the Boeings of the world jacking up the price of space. And, and they, they saw this, this other, this third party that even if it wasn't successful, could force down prices. And mm. so he found, he found a way, he found a lever that was far bigger than him that could guarantee his success if he got to that certain, uh, to that certain place. Right. Whether that was intentional that time or not, it's certainly become a part of his toolkit moving forward. And so when you look at someone like Peter Thiel, you did look at someone like Elon Musk, they repeatedly use these tools to either think through which investments are smart investments or to operate companies that uh, will benefit from change. Hmm. So essentially well, what I'm, you didn't say this, this is my interpretation is hey, here's where I want to go. Let me think about what other players, the secondary effects, right? What, how this could change the, the, the dynamics of the game and then basically move to uh, dynamics where they're incentivized to help you once you get to a certain size or a certain positioning. Is that roughly correct? Yeah, and let's get specific about what happened uh, with Elon Musk and, and SpaceX because I think it's a good example. We look at this as an incredibly innovative company, it sure is, you know, but what really, what really happened there uh, coming out of the cold war spending on, on space uh, was dropping, you know, no one was buying uh, R and D for new intercontinental ballistic missiles, so on and so forth. 
At the same time, uh, semiconductor technology, computer technologies were decreasing the size uh, that satellites needed to be, right? The space shuttle was designed basically so you could release satellites, but by the time that it got built, you know, satellites were smaller and, and then they dropped another, you know, category of size uh, after that by 2005, 2006. And so Musk looked at this and he said, okay, uh, the, the Lockheed's, the Boeing's of the world, they're designed to do what the government wants. The government no longer wants um, intercontinental ballistic missile systems uh, or whatever we were saying we were doing with rockets for NASA, um, but they no longer want those heavy lift systems. Uh, and yet these companies are tied as prime contractors to the government to do things the government says. So if I do things the government doesn't care about and these guys are stuck with their, their high cost labor and their 50 year old PhDs and so on and so forth, because they've got to have them for defense reasons, uh, then I can get a long way before they even start competing. And that's exactly, exactly what he did. The second thing that I think is really interesting about the early phases of SpaceX is the types of agile systems, the types of project management approaches they were using. Yes, they came out of PayPal. Yes, they came out of Silicon Valley. But these types of rapid iterative testing, putting your engineers closer to the factory, so on and so forth, these were things the Russians had done previously to catch up on ICBM uh, R&D as well. And so this is a, these were approaches that had actually worked in this technology category, in this product category, and he just moved them into a different space. So there wasn't as much innovation happening there initially as you might think, but there was a bigger idea and there was, you know, obviously the mastery of showmanship, but a lot mm. of what he was doing was traditional strategy, blocking and tackling and, and, and linking, you know, removing as many unknowns from the system as possible, but doing it in a way where his competitors couldn't compete and where he'd have an edge and he'd have some backing, you know, if he ran into a wall because he was delivering price competition for the first time in decades in the market. Yeah. I really like the way that in your book, you made him a case study of how he used a single spreadsheet, right? Yeah. Chunking down all of the cost, the raw material, labor, and all that stuff. Yeah to yeah. say, all right, it takes about, you know, $200,000 to raw material to make a, a, a missile and then use that spreadsheet to launch a hundred, right. uh, not missile, uh, rockets. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So he, he goes down to, he's very, you know, you kind of think about who he is, what's his background. So he has a degree in applied physics and he has a degree in, in economics or the statistically driven finance from, uh, from the Wharton school. So yeah. what's this guy really good at? He's good at first principles thinking. He thinks about what are the materials costs for this thing. And then he thinks about things in the statistical models and kind of observing systems and uh, what economists call stock flow models. That's his kind of natural way of thinking. Uh, and so when you take a look at, when he started taking a look at these systems, he said, okay, you know, the cost of a rocket the materials cost, the steel, the copper, the whatever, is about 2% of the cost of the actual rocket. Most of the rest of it is labor and overhead and, 
uh, tooling and, and all of this stuff. How can I remove all of those pieces? You know, can I take new Aero Astro kids who don't have opportunities in Boeing because those things are slowing down, give them opportunities, give them responsibilities. Can I put them closer to the means of production so that they can figure out ways to cost reduce or, or remove uh, external vendors from the system and all of those things that Congress loves uh, but aren't good for a private business. Um, and so at one point, I think he's, he's trying to build shells for his, for his rockets uh, and he's going to companies that make uh, uh, canisters, large, large uh, canisters for dairy. Right for to hold milk, these these giant these giant these giant cylinders to hold milk. Right, right. Instead of going to like whoever Ball Aerospace or whoever it is that does that for for everyone else, I don't know if that solution worked. But the point was he was he was looking at where are adjacencies that I can take advantage of that removes tremendous amounts of cost from my system, uh, whether it's labor, whether it's other people who have the existing tooling and skill set in a much lower margin business. Yeah. And I think one, let's see the insight that he has, which reduced a lot of costs was, Hey, let's make the body or whatever the thing is called reusable. Boom. Mm -hmm. That insight. Right. But I think one makes it. That, that was, that, it took, it took mm -hmm. almost 20 years to get there, by the way. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like that happened overnight, mm -hmm. but that, that wasn't, that was early on a, a goal. Mm, 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 mm. So, so I guess I'm not Elon Musk, right? Don't plan to be. Don't, don't, don't want his job at all. But I, <laughs> I love, but, but I love the systematic way of thinking yeah. about things, right? So that way yeah. we can. I think in your book again, I'm paraphrasing is the reason why you want a system, so that way you can duplicate, right? The, this this exploration of possibilities and then solutions and really right. think it through. Uh, versus just you know a serendipitous event, a, a divine insight. You know you had a you know thing in a shower, and that may or may not work, but that is not anti fragile, right? So, but having a system, I, I love systems, as, as mm -hmm. you can feel my passion. That's mm -hmm. why that's why I love talking to a fellow systems guy. So, uh, so okay, you can solve you can solve different kinds of problems i think that both of these things are true right that, that you need to get away you need to take a shower you need to overwhelm your senses so that you can have new kinds of thoughts i, I think that's important but it really helps when those thoughts are occurring within a system and you know where those ideas fit as opposed to just kind of hoping yeah so okay so let's 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 help our listeners let's help me right let's say i want to help the you know the aging workforce problem, right? So let's let's go out and yeah. build, you know, a system that helps me systematically explore the problem space, right? Market sure. risk, you know, technology risk, and then also the opportunities. Um, okay. How, like, just high level? I know you can go really geeky about the, the details. High level. How would you help someone create their own system? So I, I think the first thing is to understand what are the major, uh, we talked about rogue waves and, and these kind of undercurrents, these smaller waves that combine to create massive change. I, I think the first thing is understanding, you know, what those things are. Not that any one of those will be the seed of a massive change, but, you know, when, once that spark hits, 
they will drive the spread. And in the uh, when I was at HP, we did uh, several years of work on identifying what those major knowable trackable changes will be over the 2020s. And we talk about them in the book. Obviously, uh, there's a whole chapter. Um, but the first thing is there is starting there. Like, what are the major social trends? Uh, what are the major economic trends? What are the major technological trends that we see happening that individually could have significant impact, but when they overlap could have massive impact. So you were talking about changing demographics, right? That we have this older population and you were talking earlier about artificial intelligence, right? Can we start to use automation tools, uh, robots and so on and so forth to start to backfill uh, labor shortages? Yeah, there's, this, there's another thing to be thinking about here, which is, um, at least in the United States, the vast majority of our economy, uh, something like 67%, is driven by consumption. This is why in the face of COVID, when, when the economy shut down, we had all of the stimulus spending and we were just trying to, to keep the money rolling, uh, mm. paychecks to people who were unemployed, you know, just mm. so that there was, there was rapid spending in the economy to keep the, to keep the machine running. Mm -hmm. As we get older, Right, we're going to see people spending less. We're going to see people earning less, and we're going to see more pushes on the pressure on the social safety net. Right, when you take a look at, you know, uh, uh, healthcare spending, half of that is government. Right, whether it whether it's uh, uh, veterans or, or whether it's you know social security or uh, Medicare Medicaid spending. That's a huge issue when all of those things accelerate coming out of Afghanistan, coming out of, um, you know, the Middle East, these, these continuous wars uh, that you have lifetime uh, health care costs. And at the same time, you have an explosion of individual health care costs. In fact, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, if you just follow linear projections, I think it's well over a quarter of GDP of, of the global uh, of the U.S. Sp total econ economic spend. Uh, by 2030. I mean, that's not viable to have that kind of a drag on an economy and see growth, right? Like that's, that's just, that just makes no sense. And so one of the places where you could really think about, uh, you know, the, the, the social impact on this, right? So we talked about the economics, the changing demographics, the technology, the social impact, right? Is that, Congress is going to have to do something, right? They're going to have to figure out how to constrain healthcare costs. And they're going to have to figure out how to decrease Social Security, Medicare uh, payouts eventually. You know, and so what we've seen is that, you know, retirement age is, has gone up in the mass, last number of years to try and uh, deal with this. We've seen, um, you know, you're seeing this discussion about uh, Medicare negotiating for, for, um, uh, pharma for for pharma for for drugs um, to try and deal with this, but there's going to be increasing pressure, you know, in places like uh, healthcare administration, which was one of the massively growing areas over the last 20 years, and in, in healthcare costs, how do you just kind of bat down the the cost of private administration? Does it make sense for you know private insurers to to be a, a part of the system? Um, does it make sense for, uh, you know, a lot of doctors are saying, Hey, we won't, we won't work with Medicare and Medicaid, you know, can, you know, it, should that be a free market? 
know, I think this is going to be a real discussion in the next decade of, you know, should, should, uh, should your hip replacement doctor be able to set their own price? You know, should your general yeah. practitioner be able to set their own price? You know, in most of the, much of the world, um, that's not how it works. So I, th I think my point is if you have this larger picture of what's going on around you and, and what could happen if these issues start to overlap, you can start to prepare yourself to take advantage of them. So one of the things we did at HP looking at those specific issues, right, that, that we're going to have these tools to automate, to improve diagnostics, so on and so forth. Uh, we're going to have an explosion of healthcare needs. We're going to have an explosion of um, uh, interest in how do you decrease the cost of, of, of healthcare. One of the key things is getting diagnosis earlier so that you can start to manage uh, so that you can start to manage disease before it gets out of control. Mm. Uh, and so while we can't talk too much about it yet, we've publicly announced, or the company's publicly announced, a smart diagnostics capability that they're rolling out. And mm. you know, part of the goal of that was you know, looking at these changing demographics, but we'd also said, hey, you know, this probability of a, um, of a pandemic is going up. Yeah. You know, so, you know, how do we create a, the question was, how do we create a business that's going to be, has a chance of being successful no matter what, you know, that's going to have good compound growth, but at the mm. same time, how do we create a business that, that takes advantage, that takes advantage of, you know, that, sorry, the camera's a little goofy, but it takes advantage of, of volatility that takes advantage of rogue waves. And if you can do both of those things, have a business that's going to be pretty good if the future doesn't happen and have a fit business that's going to be great if it does, that's when you have a real win. Mm. So it's really yeah. about looking at that bigger picture, not because uh, you shouldn't be trying to hit the quarter or do, you know, do projections or you know, be a responsible product manager or meet shareholder responsibilities. It's because <laughs> if you have something that does both, you have the opportunity to have, you know, what I call a Zoom moment, right? Where Zoom walked into 2020 and they didn't expect to do 26 times growth, you know, or an Amazon moment where, you know, they walked into 2020 and they didn't think that, you know, in 90 days they were going to do 10 years of growth in their retail business and in, in their, in their online retail store business. Like that wasn't on their, on their agenda. But both companies were set up to take care of the scaling if it happened. And I think so that's the real thing. They were able to absorb the growth when the so opportunity let's actually, Yeah, let's actually drill in on that real quick. Again, let's bring back the, the dojo analogy a bit so it's a little bit more practical for someone who's not running Zoom or uh, <laughs> Amazon and so forth, right? For sure. So the, the idea of dojo practice is you want to practice daily right? Or yeah. whenever you go on there, so then you're well-versed, you're well-prepared, you know, train the, you know, conscious competence skills into unconscious competence skills. So mm -hmm. when the time hits, you can react muscle memory style, right? So the question, so now bring it to the idea of what we're talking about, the anti-fragility training, the resiliency mm -hmm. training, right? What is the, the motivation to do that? One, Mm -hmm. uh, two, how do you keep that positive mindset? Because let's say if you look at just all of the rising costs, you're like, oh my gosh, it's so overwhelming, right? So that's a, how do you keep a positive mindset there? And then three, how do you concretely um, 
level up into in, in your resiliency training? Like, mm. what is the the frequency, the the indicator that you're actually leveling up? Because I I assume if I throw you a difficult problem right now, mm-hmm. you're calm as a cucumber because you've mm-hmm. been doing this for a while, right? Mm-hmm. So what are some of the? I guess that's a multi-layer question. Pick whichever that you feel like answering first. Yeah. Um, I, I can answer how it's happened for me. Um, so I do a, a number of things in my life um, that aren't comfortable. Uh, I constantly choose to learn skills that I suck at. Uh, you know, and why do I do that? Uh, I do that to not just to learn those skills. The skills are irrelevant. It's, it's to practice being in that ambiguous space, being in that world of unknowns. Um, the result over time is that I'm highly skilled in this really broad range of things, uh, ranging from, you know, I cook at, uh, an incredibly, very, very high level to, uh, I'm comfortable dealing, you know, with economics issues to, um, I failed, uh, algebra three times in high school. Um, <laughs> and yet I spent a lot of time learning about mathematics and mathematical concepts. So I'm very comfortable talking with, you know, statisticians, uh, talking with economists about these issues, even, uh, if they're things that, that for, whatever neurological reasons I can't do, right? I understand how to talk about them and how to work with them. Uh, and I'm always going out and, and trying to touch those new spaces. Like I said, I'm, I'm a learner, right? That's my, my jam. So it's, it's, uh, that, that's one thing. The second is being really clear about what your goal is about what you want to learn. So when I was learning how to cook, um, you know, my goal was I'm a, I'm a really mediocre process manager and I wanted to learn how to manage really complex processes in real time. And so what I was learning how to cook wasn't just how to cook, you know, the mm. perfect egg. It was how, how do I cook a 12 or 20 course Michelin star meal? Mm. Not because it's a good idea for me to be a Michelin star chef, mm. but because if you're dealing with, producing a hundred different components, putting them on the plate, feeding them to everybody at the right temperature. And you're doing that over a course of days. You know, then you become really good at process management, right? Mm. How, how to, how to, how to plan the thing, how to, uh, how to organize the design of the meal, how to think through the recipes, how to think through the production processes uh, and so on and so forth. And that hobby has actually at one point became a professional uh, part of my life. But mm. at the same time, it taught all of these other skills I needed to know to be a, an effective operator, especially dealing with new types of situations. You know, how to remove all of the unnecessary risk from a complex and uh, kind of chaotic project. Mm. Mm. I love it. Thank so you. So that, that. that's that's kind of my my recommendation. Find something fun. Uh, find something fun that you suck at uh, that will teach you the skills that you need uh, yeah. to do what you want to do. You know, it's uh, 
they don't recommend the the Mr. Miyagi school where it's where it's like let's wax a bunch of cars. Like there are more yeah. fun things you can probably do with your life. Now that's an interesting insight though. So let me just bring in a mental model that a lot of people use, right? So there are four stages of learning, unconscious incompetence, right? Conscious incompetence, conscious competence, and unconscious competence, right? So as you move through the different stages. Uh-huh. Now, what you what you were telling, so the second stage, the conscious incompetence part is the most painful. Yeah. Right. So what implicit you didn't say this, but you're implying that embrace the discomfort. This part is the part where it helps you to be more resilient in also other areas as well. And then also find a skill that you do desire to learn and embrace the the uh uh conscious incompetence part is that what do you say to that i i think that i think that's true i think there's there's there is another piece within this um you know nolan bushnell says something along the line the, the inventor of atari he says something along the lines of the most fun games are the ones that are easy to learn but hard to master mm. and uh within cooking for me one of the most powerful things was learning how to break down the the individual lessons so that they were easy to learn you know but maybe a little hard to master so if you want to learn how to use a stovetop for instance mm. like learn how to make a perfect french omelet like that if if you you will learn how to see the temperature smell the temperature of the oven understand everything about that system because if you're egg you know which is you know paper thin is off by half a degree it will of of temperature it will change the the texture of the omelet and so you learn how to get really precise just doing this one thing making a hundred omelets right Mm. and that one skill that one mr miyagi skill of the wax on wax off from the karate kid you know it plays out in a hundred different applications uh in the kitchen Mm. it plays out in anything you could possibly cook understanding uh temperature in the kitchen and and how to do it in an intuitive way so it's not like i have to click the things in and and have the thermometer going like that's all important too but those are training wheels that help you build the intuition what by the way this is aside we can move on to another topic if you want but since we're talking about learning are you more of an intense learner? Like I got to hit a hundred, you know, omelets today kind of a thing. Or are you more of a joyous learner? I, I, I would cook as long as I feel I enjoy this process, then I'll stop. And so then that way I don't carry on the emotional energy of being too difficult. Like what style of learner are you? I'm an obsessive learner. Is there, is there a third style? <laughs> <laughs> explain what does that um, mean obsessive learner you know like i, I think it's probably the hundred omelets like I I, mm. I I know that for me the way to my wife is different she's kind of the the joyous learner of i'll do it till i'm bored for me you know my work ethic is about knowing that i'm hitting my marks it's not because i care mm. about making lists or achieving lists or or any of those things i just want to know that i've gotten to to a skill level so that when i come back 
you know, I'm at that skill level and I'm not starting over again. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So for a lot of those repetitive things, it's about that. But you can, the, the other thing about learning skills, like Wynton Marsalis, the, the cornetist trumpet player, I think I forget if he's a cornetist or a trumpet player, but jazz, jazz musician, you know, he talks about practice and he says, you know, at the beginning I practiced eight hours a day because I didn't know what I was practicing today. I practice 15 minutes a day because I know exactly what I'm trying to learn. And I think there are different stages in learning any skill, right? Like today when I'm, when I'm learning, you know, when I'm learning something new in cooking, it's a very, very small thing. And I know exactly, mm. you know, what I'm trying to accomplish in, in most cases. Mm. I wouldn't say that 15 years ago, uh, I knew that I was just like, I, I went to this uh, Michelin star restaurant and, and it was my first real experience with fine dining. And I was like, that was, that was unbelievable. I don't know how that happened. I don't know how food could have moved from what it always had to this entirely elevated level. Mm. And it was about like learning and I couldn't have broken down the individual steps you know, 15 years ago, I had to kind of go through that, 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 uh, I'm not a good school learner. So I have to kind of go through that, that head beating process, um, uh, to figure out what those parts are. So, so I, think, I, think, I think it's a kind of a combination. The joyous learning is, has got to be what happens when you're figuring out what the parts are. Like you just got to assume you're going to suck. Um, yeah. and then you can start to be a little more intentional maybe once you know what the, what the intention is. Yeah. Yeah. It's a uh, baby steps. I mean, dude, so many parallels about even like meditation or exercising or even psychedelics or book writing. It's, yeah. there are so many parallels there, but this is not about learning so much. I got to move on to <laughs> your book. So, so bring in this framework for someone who you're teaching, you know, the yeah. uh, anti-fragility, uh, the, the resilience training, the looking out into the world, really sort of uh, far ahead, right? Seeing the rogue waves coming, the undercurrent and, and then the rogue waves. What specific skills in terms of which data to look at, what to look at, what do they track? So that way you can walk someone who is maybe maybe a white belt in looking at yeah. this to yeah. where you're at, right? Black belt, like what skills yeah. would you say? So I think the first thing is really understanding, you know, three underlying principles uh, of resilient, what I call resilient growth. The first is awareness, right? If you're not aware of why you need to change or your people aren't aware of why they need to change because of things in the external environment. Why would they? What they're doing has worked. The second is around behavior, right? So if you see the rogue wave coming, if you see the tsunami on the beach, if you don't have the skills to get off the beach, to understand, to take advantage of uh, and be resilient to change, then it doesn't matter that you see the wave coming. And then the third, and this is perhaps the most important part, is creating a culture that looks out uh, 
onto the horizon as well as looking inwardly. In many organizations, maybe even most, you know, the focus is really on financial uh, and operational efficiency. When what, we real, what we've realized between uh, 1999 and 2019 is that three quarters of the causes of sustained decreases in business value you know, are rogue waves. They're, they're ex massive external changes. They're, they're massive failures in strategy. That, that rippled back into the company. And so what we need to be thinking uh, about is how to create a culture, how to, how to create this hard and soft incentives, the communication structures in our companies uh, and in our lives that allow that looking out while focusing on performance inside, kind of very much like you were saying about uh, the point of mastery is, is understanding what's going out on the world, you know, in, in the hearts of others and then in your own heart. Um, so I think those are the three major skills. So how do you start, right? It doesn't really matter where you start. It's with any of these, um, but the place you can start today is reading the newspaper, ideally a better one, like the economist or, you know, um, I like the, uh, the Nikkei Asian review. Uh, and instead of looking at a headline, Look at all of the headlines and then like maybe write a list, uh, go back three months, random day, write down all of the headlines from the different sections and then look at what they mean together, right? Not individually, like China does this, the U.S. does this, Modi in India does this, supply chain disruption over here, like Look at them in aggregate. Look at the whole newspaper instead of any individual headline and, and, and practice doing that. Practice looking at what are the social, what are the economic, what are the technological changes that are going on uh, around us? And then asking if these overlapped, if these hit me simultaneously, what would they mean for me? Mm. Right? How would I take advantage of them? Because the issue is never or very rarely one thing. It's a combination of things. When you take a look at the 2008 financial crash, right? What was really going on? Uh, uh, construction labor is one of the major drivers of economic growth in the, the United States. Congress was trying to drive that. Uh, one of the major causes of wealth growth in the United States is when families uh, become homeowners so that they lock in their cost, uh, the cost of housing. Um, uh, we saw a shift in the way we were managing risk. We were starting to use new statistical tools to build derivatives, to, to, to balance risk in really complex ways. Um, and, and what happened when the economy slowed down is all of that cascaded one into another into another. Most people didn't see this coming. The ones that did, they did really, really, really well. Right? The Ray Dalios of the world did really, really, really well in that situation, not because they were smarter than you or than me or than anybody else. It's because they took the time to look under the sheets and see, you know, uh, to see if there was anything there. So on that note, so that's, real quick. That's, the, that's the real skill is like learning how to like look at the look, you know, stop reading the New York Post 
and stop reading yeah. Facebook. Get into to harder, heavier data. Uh, look at it uh, in aggregate instead of individually. And then yeah. ask what would happen if this collided, these things that might be happening in India or might be happening in, in Myanmar or, or Lagos. What would happen to me if they happened here? Yeah. I really appreciate that, by the way. I have been accused of being too much of a monk, too much of a geek, because I like to just do, you know, read stuff in my cave, what I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. And and I the, the my rationalization is that, hey, it's, if it's outside of my sphere of influence, it's not, you know, I can't do anything about it. It, 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 um, it amps up my nervous energy. So I rather not. Right. But in this conversation, it helps me to like, okay, so there are tactical um, skills I can learn to also mm -hmm. practice the wide angle lens around the mm -hmm. daily and also see the relevance. So it's not just, it's not just, Hey, things are happening out there, but now this practice, this, 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 this specific practice helps me to think the relevance to my s small world here on the, on the internet kind of a thing. So I really appreciate this. I, I appreciate that idea that the, I'm appreciating the dojo model more as we're talking. And that's exactly what it is. It's how do I simulate, why do I simulate these things? It's to figure out how I can use the tools that I have that what is, what is in my sphere of influence to take advantage of it. And if there are more, you, you kind of asked, what's the first step, right? The second step is figuring out, okay, what steps can I take to increase my optionality, right? To increase uh, uh, my potential if those things happen, to increase my sphere of influence if change occurs. Because the one thing we know is that change is a constant. I happen to believe, maybe you do, that the world is moving faster. I happen to believe that our data systems, our economic systems, uh, our supply chains, uh, our politics are becoming more globally connected. And that means that we're going to have more volatility, right? Uh, things are moving faster. There's more energy in the system. Things that used to happen over there, you know, it took 60 years for the, for the Black Plague to get from Europe, uh, from, from Asia to Europe. It took what? You know, a sneeze in a couple of days for it to get from Wuhan to the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. right like things that used to not matter because they happened over there suddenly suddenly matter because they happen over here and so we've got to take this global perspective and we've got to think about the world uh, a world where volatility is the norm where change is the norm where rogue waves are the norm instead of the edge case yeah so quick question there use bridgewater as an example ray dalio bridgewater they were they were able to benefit from their insight right their discipline right their mastery right mm -hmm. so part of and i think it's uh well they're they're a hedge fund company right and individual contributors vote yay or nay within their culture of what to invest and there's a direct incentive to perform at a high level right seeing mm -hmm. far ahead seeing the risk yep. and so forth yeah um not so obvious in other cases per se. Let's say in regular businesses, they don't necessarily. Well, so a little background. A little background. I was a chief culture officer for a startup of 250 people. One insight that I got as during my tenure there is you get what you incentivize monetarily as well as social sure status, right? Sure so do. then, so so right. So so then, how do you? 
create the incentive structure, monetary or social, to mm. look ahead for risk as well as opportunities. Mm. Like this, this would make what you were saying even more concrete and tactical for people mm. who run their organizations. Mm -hmm. So if you run the, there's, I think there are two, there are three questions within this. One, if you run the organization and you dominate the board, there's one set of answers. Two, if you're a middle manager in an organization where you don't do that, there's a second set of answers. And third, if you're a, an employee, um, uh, there's a third set of answers. So if you run the organization, you know, we talk a lot about how to, in, in, in chapter eight of the book, uh, we talk a lot about how to create uh, processes and incentives that encourage people to look outside uh, of, of the organization and, and to, create, uh, to create a driver of, to drive innovation in the organization. Um, and it really comes down to, you know, love people for the quality of their experiments and the quality of their thinking as opposed to the results. Yeah, the second you start, you know, rewarding people for the quality of their results, they're going to do things that they know will be successful before they start. Lots of places where you want to do that, but not when you're asking people to experiment and innovate. Because by definition, if you're asking them to experiment and innovate, you're in a situation where failure is also a known outcome. And, yep. and you don't want... You know, you don't want people to telling telling you that you're, you know, uh, HIV negative when you're HIV positive, right? Like you, you really want the right data and you really That's want right. the right experiments. So, right. so make sure that you're encouraging that and you're paying people to do experiments as opposed to do uh, experiments that have the results you want. Hold on. Second, so, so hold on. So uh, yeah. quick interjection. So what I'm hearing you say is, Reward them for the rigor of their experiment, correct? The rigor, the rigor of the experimental design, correct. The rigor of running the experiments, uh, and the rigor of sort of the the insight that leads the the hypothesis that leads to the experiment, right? That's totally different from rewarding people for the outcome. So, if you don't mind, let's drill that drilling even further. So reward means what? Like, hey, so if sales is easy, right? You get percentage commission. That's that's easy. How do you reward rigor <laughs> mm -hmm. of an experimental design? Like, it doesn't. It's not as a direct, you know, percentage of outcome. Of yeah, kind of a thing. no, it's 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 harder for management. I'm not, I'm not denying that. But uh, we talk about five steps in this process in the book. Kind of how do you uh, assess the, the, the start point? How do you look at where this experiment would exist within a system? Uh, how do you look at the range of possible outcomes? Uh, how do you uncouple threats and opportunities so that you're minimizing downside risk and maximizing opportunity? And how do you, in, in many research programs it's not one experiment it's a battery of experiments and how do you make how do you reward uh looking at the experiments as a portfolio as opposed to individual experiments like what's the success of the portfolio because you can statistic if you do enough experiments statistically they should add up to more than the sum of the parts 
Um, and so it's, it's really about that, asking people to do that kind of metacognition um, and, and framing up why they're doing what they're doing. Not because they shouldn't be intuitive in what they're doing uh, and, and not because they know why they're doing it necessarily before they start, but at some point that should be a part of the process, right? And, and that's what you want to be uh, encouraging. Um, the second thing is that, that uh, I think is really interesting is rewarding people for cutting their own projects. Hmm. Like, that's a really weird idea. But why don't we do that? Like when someone says, hey, we started off, we thought this was a good idea. Turns out that it was dumb. Uh, I'm going to cut it before anyone else complains. We should mm. reward that instead of what we what I see in a lot of corporate cultures, which is hiding failure. Right. The mm. second you hide failure, you remove the ability to learn from it. Uh, the third piece in in. I can feel what's going on in people's heads right now. So I want people to just to take unlimited risks and fail a lot. That doesn't seem like a good idea. Um, it's not unless you talk to them in terms of risk bands, what's the most and what's the least amount of risk that you'll tolerate from them. Mm. Right. So you're rewarding them for a certain amount of failure and you're rewarding them for a certain amount of success. And that should be different for different roles in different places, in uh, different people uh, levels within your organization. But you've got to look at both sides of that coin. If you just mm. will, if you just say, here's the maximum amount of risk I want you to take, you know, what you're doing is you're just incentivizing everybody to be sheep. And that's not what any of us want as leaders. Yeah, I appreciate that. And then in my mind, what brings to mind is, Basically, how do you draw boundaries around it? Maybe a duration, yeah. maybe some amount of budget, maybe an amount of you know personnel, or perhaps even like reputational risk, things yeah. like that. Yeah. So that way, there's some boundaries around. Yeah. Hey, you, think, you can roam yeah. inside of this yeah. area. I, mean, I think I think I I want you to take this much a reputational risk. I think that's a powerful and and saying it publicly, right? So you mm -hmm. inoculate them against it. Like, I think that's a really powerful way of potentially looking at these kinds of things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Like I want you to fail 30% of the time. If you're not failing 30% of the time, I, I like, I don't want to hear from you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like it's a weird, it's a weird idea, but how else do you, how else do you encourage it and give permission? Mm. Lastly, and I'm watching the time man, an hour and a half go by quick. So I have, <laughs> So you're you're the black belt, right? Mm -hmm. I, I'm curious to know if you have any uh, plans, right? Here's here's an idea. What I desire, right? You can do whatever you want with it. Is hey, I want to get better at this. Okay. I want to study with Jonathan, right? Okay. Why why doesn't Jonathan start his own dojo? So that way, people <laughs> who are interested, right, in yeah. learning these resiliency yeah. skills and anti-fragile yeah. skills and really thinking about things as a leader, as a contributor, as a manager, whatever level they're at, as an entrepreneur, yeah. as a, like a visioneer can say, all right, Jonathan has a framework and he has made, you know, some tools to make it easier for people to grasp the basically go from white belt to black belt. So mm -hmm. this is an idea for you, whatever you want to do with it. It's up to you. I, I would, I would, I would love to, uh, love to do that we're in the process of building out training modules and and all of those things 
uh, right now. I think, you know, going back to what you're saying, you know, I think a lot of this is experiential. You know, you can't, you can't, you can't read about, you know, uh, jujitsu. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, you got, you got to do it. And and I'd love to, as things get a little better here, figure out how we can do some experiential training together. Yeah, I think it's super worthwhile. I mean, especially right the premise before you even begin all of this, whether you like it or not. The world is becoming more volatile, so to speak, right? Things are coming online. Things are changing quickly and politically or otherwise. There's a lot of moving parts. And, and from my perspective, from the more spiritual perspective, uh, control was an illusion anyway. So, so if that's the case, then might as well learn these key skills so that you can navigate, be a free agent and navigate and thrive in this uh, yeah. future that has more possibilities. Well, there's, there's more potential and more options than ever. And they're popping up faster than they ever have before. And I think that's the thing that we forget. The reason the world is scary right now is we're starting to be able to see the future in a real way for the first time. And that means that you can see the future in a real way for the first time, this is your opportunity to change it, to shape it, to, to, to surf the next wave. I'm excited. I love the idea of becoming a big wave surfer, right? Ride these hundred feet, you know, rogue waves. I don't, I don't swim, but I like the idea of it. I'm very enamored by it. So really appreciate the way you showed up, Jonathan. I really, there, and what there's, a beautiful there's book. your next, there's your next skill to learn, CK. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Put my life on the line on this podcast. Love here. Love hey man, um, go get the book, Rogue Waves, Future Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change. Thank and, you so much for being here. And feel free to reach out to me either on my website, jonathanbrill.com, or please follow me on LinkedIn. That's where you're going to find the latest from HBR, Forbes, Inc., uh, anywhere else I might be today.